You are listening to the audio preaching podcast from Heritage Baptist Church in Corpus Christi, Texas, led by Pastor Johnny Chen. Our church is dedicated to serving Jesus Christ and reaching the world by going forward with the gospel. We pray that you will be helped and blessed by this message from God's Word. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. 1 Kings chapter 4 tells us that Solomon wrote 1,005 songs, but this was his best, called the Song of Songs. There's a theory floating around. I don't know. I mean, it's only a theory. But Solomon had 1,000 wives. And it is theorized that of these 1,005 songs, a thousand of them were written, one for each of those wives. However, God only published the song that he wrote for the one that he had meant for him to marry. And that would be the Song of Solomon. But it's called the Song of Songs. We say that Jesus isn't just the king, we call him the king of kings. He is the king above all kings. He is not just the Lord, he is the Lord of lords. He is the Lord above all lords. In the tabernacle, in the temple, there was the most holy place called the Holy of Holies. It was the holiest place of all holy places. So for this to be called the Song of Songs, this was the grandest and greatest song, the song above all songs. And it is a song about the theme above all themes, the mystery of all mysteries, the pursuit of all pursuits, the possession of all possessions, love. Right here in the middle of your Bible is God's stamp of approval upon biblical, holy love between a man and a woman. It was written in nine, either 940 to 931 BC. The time period it covers is indefinite. The author is Solomon. There are arguments to something else, but I mean, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, seems pretty clear to me. So um, we won't argue with that one. And the audience is all mankind. Now, before I go any further, I must address the discomfort that I already feel in the room about this book in the Bible. And uh, throughout our Through the Bible series that we have done on Sunday nights, I have been excited to study many of the books that we have already gone through. And you have shared in my excitement, but I must be honest, I dreaded this study. And uh, this is a book that I viewed in a completely separate realm of scripture than the other 65 books of the Bible. And uh, I taught a Sunday school class, 18 to 29 singles up north. And I told them, you can choose any book in the Bible and I will teach it for you. I did not give them any type of criteria, but I was praying, Lord, do not let them choose Revelation and do not let them choose Song of Solomon. And they chose Revelation. I have approached some of you before and said, hey, Sunday night in our Through the Bible series, we're going through Joshua, or we're going through Psalms, or we're going through Ecclesiastes. And you would reply, oh, nice, or great, or oh, that's going to be really good. I'll be looking forward to that one. Yesterday, I told some of you that we were going through the Song of Solomon, and I got back these replies. Good luck. Oh, boy. I'll be praying, and my personal favorite, yikes. <laughs> However, 
after taking the time to study through this book, I am ashamed of my dread that I had about it. I am ashamed of the misconceptions that I had about this book. I am ashamed that after 29 years of living, I had never once even known the plot of the book. I am not ashamed to say here tonight that the Song of Solomon is now easily in my top five favorite books of the Bible. But I am ashamed that I have avoided this book as a preacher and that I have avoided this book as a student of scripture. But I will also say Hallmark and Disney have got nothing on Song of Solomon. Now, being honest, there is language in the book that some have called suggestive, some have called it lewd, some have called it even inappropriate to be read in church or inappropriate for scripture. But none of these can be further from the truth. And I like what one um, preacher said about this, this book. He says, nowhere in scripture does the unspiritual mind tread upon ground so mysterious and incomprehensible as in this book. However, the saintliest men and women of the ages have found it a source of pure and exquisite delight. Now certainly there are portions of scripture and language in scripture that can be shocking at first, uh, but all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. So these portions of scripture, including those in the Song of Solomon, must simply be approached with care. They don't need to be avoided with contempt. Now, many people over the centuries have struggled with how to interpret this book properly. But throughout that time, really three main interpretations have come forward. One of them is the natural interpretation. And that is approaching the book, believing that this book is nothing more than a collection of love poems turned into a love song based solely upon its literary beauty and value. But we don't believe this. We reject this interpretation. Another interpretation is the allegorical interpretation. And that is the viewpoint that this story is not true, that it is purely figurative, and designed to illustrate the ideal marriage between a man and a woman. The characters are made up. The locations, although, although they are real, are not actually in the story. Every element of the story is really just a picture. It's to picture something else entirely and cannot be taken at face value. This is not the proper interpretation either. We reject this interpretation. But then the last one is what we call the typical interpretation, or what I like to call the analogical interpretation. This interpretation balances both the natural and the allegorical interpretations without giving in to the extremes of either. So in other words, the characters are real, the locations are real, the story has actually happened, but further than that, there is a deeper lesson to be learned. There is a moral truth that is being taught when we take the time to look beyond the surface story. An analogy is what it is. And this is the interpretation that is correct. This story in Song of Solomon presents us with a beautiful analogy. Now, what is an analogy? An analogy is a comparison between two facts. One fact being understandable 
and one fact being difficult to understand. So a good analogy uses something that we understand to explain something that we don't understand. Jesus did this often in his teaching when he said the kingdom of heaven is like. And he would use something that people understood, a mustard seed or leaven or like a shepherd going and seeking his sheep or a lady who lost a coin. People understand that and he used that understandable fact to be able to explain the kingdom of heaven, which was another fact, but something that a lot of people didn't understand. And here in the Song of Solomon, God gives us an analogy. Now, rather than just telling you what that analogy is now, I invite you to come with me as we study through the story, and you are going to find out the analogy for yourself. If you do not find the analogy by the end of this, you're either asleep or I am a terrible teacher. So I guess fall asleep now if... Uh, but I don't think anyone's going to be falling asleep tonight. So, Now, here is usually where I outline the book for you in our studies, but it would take far too long to do this. The book is quite difficult to outline uh, because it is mainly conversational. Uh, more helpful than knowing the outline is simply knowing who is doing the talking, who is talking and when. Because unlike the book of Job, which is also very conversational, and it uses phrases like, and then Job said, or, and Bildad replied, and, and that's very easy to follow along. This book doesn't do that. Speakers switch one from another without any warning other than a change in pronouns. And I'll show you an example of that in just a little bit. But when you take your time, you can see where one speaker will take over from another, and then things switch. Uh, Brother James, do me a favor. Why don't you zoom in on my Bible so that people can see as well. But this is what I did throughout my study. I found every character that is in the Song of Solomon, and I assigned them to a highlighter color. And I went through and I highlighted their lines, if you would. If you would want to look at this and kind of copy it in your Bible as well, it's, it's very helpful. But what I will promise to do throughout the study is I will show you, I will always tell you who is doing the speaking. But here is something that I do think that you should write down. I think you should write down the characters that are in the book so that you know who I am referring to when I mention their name. One of the characters, the main character, is the Shulamite. S-H-U-L-A-M-I-T-E. S-H-U-L-A-M-I-T-E, the Shulamite. She is also the bride. Anyone need a pen? Anyone at all? No, 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 we're good? Okay. So you have the Shulamite, which is the bride. She is pink in my Bible. And then you have the daughters of Jerusalem, also known as the friends of the bride, or her bridal party, if you will. But they are the daughters of Jerusalem. They are purple in my Bible. You have the Shulamite's siblings, and from what I see in my study and using some deductive reasoning, I believe it to be her brothers, her older brothers. It doesn't seem like she has a sister. Uh, but we'll just call them the siblings because honestly, I'm not sure. But you have the Shulamites' siblings. They are orange in my Bible. Then you have the young shepherd man. The young shepherd man. He's blue in my Bible. You have Solomon. 
You have an officer, and he's just, uh, I, what I believe him to be an officer, uh, and he's going to come up right in the middle of, of chapter 3, uh, or the end of chapter 3. He's green in my Bible. And then you have the narrator, which we just read in chapter 1, verse 1, uh, the one who kind of introduces the story to us, and he's yellow. And I imagine him as Sir David Attenborough. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Anyways, now as we go through these chapters again, I will always show which one of these characters is doing the talking. Understanding who is speaking allows us to understand much more of what's going on in the book because the book does not follow a chronological timeline. And that's why it is very easy to, uh, to get confused and to get lost in the book. It jumps from the past to the present and back to the past. Um, however, I'm confident with the Lord's help that our eyes will be open tonight to the story of this book. Now, as I go through this, there are going to be times where you're going to wonder where I'm coming from. Or you are going to wonder where I am seeing what I am describing. But I promise you, if you study this for yourself, it's all there. You will see it. I promise you that. Let's go ahead and get started. In chapter 1, verse 2 through 6, we find ourselves in the chambers of the king. And a lady is speaking about somebody that she obviously loves very, very, very much. Now, notice the pronoun shifts here in verse 4. Draw me. So we have singular here. This must be the lady that is speaking. But then look here. We will run after thee. This is plural. This cannot be the lady that is doing the speaking. It must be somebody different, and it must be a group. But then it switches back. The king hath brought me into his chambers. Singular again. Therefore, this is the lady that is doing the talking. But then look at the rest of verse 4. We will be glad and rejoice in thee. We will remember thy love more than wine. The upright love thee. Again, we have plural. These are the pronoun shifts that you need to be watching for. Okay? Remember, the verses and the chapter divisions in your Bible are not inspired. They are just there to help us reference certain things. It's going to take a little bit of extra study in your Bible uh, in order to find a lot of these things going on, okay? But what we have in these opening verses is the bride and her wedding party. This is a conversation that the bride is having with her bridal party before the wedding. And she has been brought into the king's chambers. The wedding is about to begin, and her bridal party is happy for this special day. Now in verse 5 and 6, as with any lady, she is quite insecure about her appearance. She describes her skin as being black and darkened by the sun. She thinks she looks horrible. It's her wedding day and she is unhappy. She even tells her bridal party not to look upon her, but then she explains why her skin is so dark. She says, I worked in the vineyards along with my siblings. And in her mind, her siblings were always angry with her because they would always make her work in the vineyards. Look in verse 6. They made me the keeper of the vineyards. This is toward the end. But mine own vineyard have I not kept. Now she's saying one of two things. She's either saying they made me work so often taking care of all their stuff that I didn't even have time to take care of my responsibilities. Or she's saying it with a dual meaning that because of all the work that I had to do, my own vineyard, my appearance, I haven't even, be able, I haven't even been able to keep up with. 
This is her wedding day. She feels completely inadequate, and she feels very homely. But it's here in verse 7 we see another shift in the conversation. The Shulamite is still talking, but she is no longer talking to her friends. She is still talking, but she is not talking as a bride. Instead, she is talking to a young shepherd, a man in the story. And what appears to be happening is the bride is telling her bridal party of a story of a conversation that she and her fiancé had before they were engaged, back when they were newly in love. And in verse 7 through 10, she asks the shepherd where he comes from. And he doesn't answer her question. He kind of skitters around the, the answer. He kind of answers without answering. He doesn't tell her where he's from, but he does tell her how beautiful he thinks she is. So can you imagine this lady on her wedding day looking in the mirror and thinking, I look horrible. My skin is so dark. Uh, ladies on their wedding day were meant to be pale but her skin is dark, and she's thinking, I look terrible, I feel horrible about myself, but I do remember back when we were first dating that he thought I was beautiful. So this was important to her. Her bridal party in verse 11 vows to make her even more jewelry so that she will feel beautiful on her wedding day. We'll do whatever you want in order to make you feel special. In verse 12 through 14, the bride starts talking about how she's ready to be married. She describes her love for her fiancé, and suddenly in verse 15, her fiancé appears behind her, and he starts responding to what she, ha what she has said about him. Look in verse 15. Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. Thou hast dove's eyes. Take notes, gentlemen. <laughs> to which she replies, no, you are fair. Thou art fair. You keep on saying that I am beautiful. No, you are beautiful. Our home is beautiful. But I'm nothing. I'm nothing special. Look at what she says about herself in chapter 2, verse 1. I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. Contrary to popular belief, that is not the groom speaking. That is the bride speaking. And you can tell that by the gender of the pronouns in the Hebrew language. This is her speaking. And when you realize that the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley were very small flowers, common flowers, flowers that nobody would pick for somebody else. However, they did have some beauty to them. So she is saying, you keep saying I'm beautiful, but I really have nothing special to offer. I'm just a rose of Sharon. I'm just a lily of the valley. And look at his response to her. As the lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. Maybe you just see yourself as a lily, but compared to all the other ladies, they're like thorns compared to you. Gentlemen, take notes. He says, you may think you are common, but you are everything to me. And she replies, if I am like a lily among thorns, then you are like an apple tree among the forest. You are like a, a fruit tree among a forest of fruitless men. You have protected me. You've provided for me. You've cherished me. And she says this, he brought me to his banqueting house and his banner over me was love. And they embrace one another and the bride gives a charge in verse 7. Look in verse 7. I charge you, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose and by the hinds of the field, that ye stir not up nor awake my love till he please. 
<coughs> now, she gives this charge three times throughout the, throughout the book. She gives it once in chapter 2, verse 7. She gives it once in chapter 3, verse 5. And she gives it another time in chapter 8, verse 4. And there's something that we, some things that we need to know about this charge every time she gives them. She always says the same thing. I charge you, all you daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose, and, and that you stir not up nor wake my love until you please. She always says the same thing. However, depending on where she is in her story, these charges carry a different significance. What is the significance right now? Well, she is so overwhelmingly happy in love. She's about to get married. To her, the fact that her fiancé loves her so much when she really has nothing to offer is too good to be true. It's like they're dreaming. So she looks at her friends and basically says, don't wake us up. Aww. But whenever there is this charge, it also, talks, it also shows us that there's a division about to come in the book. So with this charge comes a division in the book. And again, we are taken back in the timeline. So we started at the wedding day. She takes us back to a conversation where he said he thought that she was beautiful. She had asked where he comes from. He didn't really answer. Then we came back to the wedding day where the, husband, where the groom is um, saying how much that he loves her. And now we're about to go back in the timeline again. And I need to find where I'm at in my notes. Okay, yes, in verse 8 through 17, she begins telling another story. And one day she sees her shepherd coming over the hills. And he's got a spring in his step. She compares him to like a, a deer skipping across the mountains. And he's calling out. She can hear his voice. And as he comes near, he speaks to her. He declares his love for her and he asks her to come away with him. She, he is proposing marriage to her. Now, unfortunately for the couple, right in verse 15, the siblings show up and interrupt the proposal, and they tell the Shulamite girl that there's work to do in the vineyards. Take us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. The, the, I mean, they're having a moment here, you know? Come away with me. The shepherd is proposing to this girl that he's so madly in love with, and she's in love with him, and here come the siblings. Whoa, whoa, whoa. No time for that. There's foxes in the vineyards. You need to go and clear them out. So she doesn't answer his question. She doesn't answer his proposal, but she looks back at him, and she says this, My beloved is mine, and I am his. And she tells him to come back in the morning. And look at what she says in verse 17. Look at the language. It's very important, very important. Until the day break and the shadows flee away, turn, my beloved, and be like a roe or a young heart upon the mountains of Bether. So he's saying, look, you're going to have to go away for a little bit, but once the shadows flee away, once the dawn comes, I want you to come back. But she doesn't answer his proposal, so they part ways. But that night, in chapter 3, she has a dream. And this dream, she's searching for her shepherd, but she cannot find him. She even finds the watchman of her town, and she asks the watchman if they've seen the one whom her soul loves, but they don't give an answer. Right now, what's happening is her subconscious is wondering, will I ever see him again? Is he going to come back in the morning? But a little bit after she sees the watchman in her dream, she finds him. She says she grabs onto him and she refuses to let him go. She brings him all the way back home and they embrace again and she gives the charge again. Stir not up nor awake my love until he please. So think about this. In 
chapter 2, verse 7, she is awake on her wedding day and charging her wedding party that ye stir not up nor awaken my love till he please. Here in chapter 3, verse 5, she's telling her fiancé in a dream that she has had long before. So then on her wedding day, when she said that to her bridal party and when she said it to her fiancé, she was basically saying, I had a dream like this before, but you are now making my dream come true. I told you Disney's got nothing. But again with this charge, in 3.5 comes a division. And here in verse 6, it is the morning. It's the morning that she told him to come back. And sure enough, she looks over the hills and somebody is coming over the hills, but it is not the shepherd. It's a caravan. And it pulls right up to our home uh, to, or to her town. It smells like perfume. It's filled with merchants' powders. There are 60 soldiers standing guard. And at the center of the caravan is a chariot of wood covered in gold and silver and purple. And she asks, who many presume to be an officer or one of those guards, who does this caravan belong to? And he answers in verse 7, behold his bed, which is Solomon's. This is King Solomon's caravan. And he tells her and all the daughters of Zion, go see King Solomon. He's wearing a crown that his mother made for him only to be worn on the day of his espousals. King Solomon is going to be engaged today. You better go and see who he's going to be engaged to. So she goes up along with all the other daughters of Jerusalem. And in verse 4, Solomon starts talking, and he starts talking to her. And he starts calling her the same names that her shepherd called her. And he even quotes the words that she told the shepherd the night before. Look in verse 6. Until the day break and the shadows flee away, I will get me to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense, King Solomon is telling the Shulamite girl, I am that shepherd. So you can imagine her shock. And he again expresses his love for her, and he again asks her to marry him. Uh, he proposes marriage to her. He says things like, just one look from you is all it took to ravish my heart and all these things. And he describes her as a garden that is sealed up or like a fountain or a, a spring that is sealed up. And he basically asks, will you open yourself to me and will you marry me? Will you be my bride? And she says, yes. Look at what she says in verse 16. Let my beloved come into his garden. I will no longer be closed off. You can come in. Yes, I accept your proposal. And in chapter 5, verse 1, he calls for a celebration. Now, some, So they're engaged. Now, sometime after this engagement, she has another dream. And this time it turns into a nightmare. It follows, it's, the dream is relayed in chapter 5, verse 2, all the way through chapter 6, verse 3. And it follows the same pattern as her first dream, but this one is much more intense. How many of you just have a recurring dream? Anybody at all? You have a recurring dream? Mine is that I am, 
is that I am with my family and I come into the car and I realize that somebody is in the car and somebody is wanting to take my children. And so I go up and I try to punch and I go, and it just barely, and he kind of laughs at me. And then I tell the kids to run. And of course, they're running in like slow motion, right? If you ever had that, that's my recurring dream. She has this recurring dream, and it's always that I am losing him. It's always I'm losing him. I'm searching for him, and I can't find him. This is the second time that she's had it. Now she's engaged to him, but she's having the dream again. And um, she wakes up to her fiancé. She wakes up in her dream to her fiancé knocking on the door, and he is asking for her to let him in. But in verse 3, she doesn't let him in. She gives him an excuse. She says, I have put off my coat. How shall I put it on? I have washed my feet. How shall I defile them? I can't get out of bed. He reaches inside a lot of those old uh, doors in biblical times. They had a hole in the door where you could reach in and you can unlatch from the inside. And she sees his arm reach in to try to unlatch. And when she sees him, her heart yearns for him. She gets up out of bed. She runs to the door and she opens it, but he's gone. And she says, my soul fails within me. I start calling for him, but he doesn't answer. I'm seeking for him, but I cannot find him. So as in her first dream, she finds the watchman again. But the watchmen don't even let her ask a question. They catch her and they beat her and they take her veil from her. It's a horrible dream. She then calls out to her friends, to the daughters of Jerusalem, and says, help me find the one who my soul loves. I'm sick of love. It's not like I'm sick of this love thing. You know, she's sick in love, okay? It's just, she, she loves the guy, okay? Um, but instead of her friends coming back and saying, yes, we'll help you, they answer with, uh, they answer with harshness. Look in verse 9. It says, what is thy beloved more than another, another beloved? O thou fairest among women, what is thy beloved more than another beloved that thou dost so charge us? And in verse 10 through 16, she describes him. She describes his face, his hair is bushy, his eyes are like, you know, lights, and his legs, his hands. He speaks kindly to me. And she says in verse 16, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. And her description of her fiancé changes the heart of her friends. And in her dream, they finally say, okay, well, if he's that awesome, Let's help you find him. Time out. This is just a side note here. In the world, people are going to be asking you, what's so good about Jesus? Why is Jesus so much better than living for the world? And you should be able to come back and say, let me tell you about him. And when you truly spread the gospel and you say, this is what the Lord has done for me, the same people that mocked and said, why is he so much more special is going to look back at you and say, if he is that amazing, help me find him too. Where is he? And she says, I think he's gone to the garden. Let's go look in the garden. And right before her dream ends, she encourages herself by saying, I am my beloved's and my beloved's is mine. And this brings us back full circle to the wedding day. And it appears that this wedding ceremony has begun and Solomon is giving a speech to the bride in front of this great congregation of people. Now, here's something that we know about Solomon. He had multiple wives. Multiple wives. Uh, now in verse 4 through 9, Solomon begins to explain what he sees in this Shulamite woman, 
in this girl that he is about to marry. Look in verse 4. Thou art beautiful, O my love, as Tirzah, comely as Jerusalem, terrible as an army with banners. So husbands, whenever your wife looks at you and says, whisper sweet nothings to me, just look back and say, honey, you're terrible. As an army with banners, as an army with banners. I don't know how that makes it any better, but anyways. So Solomon has had multiple wives, and at verse 8, we can see he already has 60 queens. He already has 80 concubines, and he's surrounded by virgins without number. However, we know that only one of those ladies was the one that God had planned for him. And in my heart, I truly believe that this Shulamite was the one that he was supposed to wait for. With that being said, he tells her, of all the women I know, you are the only one for me. Now, ladies, try not to scoff because he's, he's got 60 right now. He's got 900 and, I can't do, 940 more to go. So try not to scoff. It does, it does come in to play later in our application. But he says, you are the only one for me. Even the other queens and the other concubines look at you and they see something special about you and they give you praise. And in verse 10, the bride reacts to this praise and look what she says. Who is she that looketh forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners? You're talking about me? No, I've got nothing special about me. She actually runs out of the wedding ceremony and she escapes to a nearby garden. She's, she's embarrassed. She doesn't know what to do. The bridal party runs after her and begs her to come back. And she says, what will ye see in the Shulamite? Why should I come back? He's saying all these special things about me. What does he see in me? And look at how they answer in the end of verse 13. As it were, the company of two armies. He said you were as terrible as an, just an army, but you are, you are like the company of two armies. You are twice as beautiful as he is even expressing to you that you are. And her bridal party continues to try to cheer her up and make her see her beauty. And just to show you that women have never changed. Look at what the women say to her to try to encourage her in chapter 7, verse 1. How beautiful are thy feet with shoes. So think about what is happening here. Sweetheart, stop being so hard on yourself. He thinks that you're beautiful, and in fact, you're twice as beautiful as he says you are. And by the way, we love your shoes. <laughs> Women have never changed. After the wedding, I'm sure they went to the ladies' bathroom and got gifts for one another. <laughs> right, Brother Rusty? They shower her with all these compliments, and they basically tell her, you couldn't look better. But then in verse 6 through 9, Solomon finds her. He has come out of the wedding ceremony. He finds her, and he begins to speak. And he says, how fair and how pleasant art thou, O love, for delights. And he again affirms his love and his admiration, uh, his, uh, admiration for her, to which she replies again in verse 10, I am my beloved's, and his desire is toward me. You really do love me simply for who I am. Even though I am nothing special, you love me. And here it is presumed that they are married. Now, after the marriage in verse 11, she asks for him to take her back to where they first met. 
Let's walk among the vineyards again. Let's go back and see my home. Let's do all the things we used to do when we first fell in love. And apparently he agrees. Now, gentlemen, here's a little time out here. Remember all the things that you did to win her heart? Better not stop just because you've won it. Oh, it's quiet. Man. Gentlemen, you went out of your way to win her heart. You went out of her way to make her feel special. Don't you dare stop just because you have papers on her now. That's good preaching. Now, I talked this, talk this morning about ladies and dress and how they need to respect themselves and take care of themselves. And one of the biggest things that I hear from my wife is it's difficult. She goes out to shop and she doesn't find anything. It's difficult to find modest apparel in this world. And she, but here's one thing she says, I found this and I found this and I found this, but it was all too expensive. Now, gentlemen, you're not going to like this, but spare no expense when it comes to allowing your wife to feel beautiful and to take care of herself. Don't you dare look back at her and say, no, you're not going to be able to buy that modest clothing because it's too much. You would drop $1,000 on an AR-15 right now. And you would find a lot of ways to, to justify it. If your wife comes home and she says, I went out sincerely trying to find more things so that I could dress godly and I could dress modestly, but it was too much, you look back at her and you say, you go back and get everything that you want. Ladies, you should be amening on that one. You go back and you get everything. You spare no expense. You take care of yourself. And what, her, what she was wanting is, can we go back? Can we go back to, when, to the place where we first fell in love with one another? And he agrees. Now, again, she gives her charge. But this time, she's not saying our love is like a dream. She is not saying it in a dream. Her dream has become her reality. He has made her dream come true. In chapter 8, in verse 5, her siblings greet their sister and her new husband. And they remember how they helped to raise her. And the wife speaks to Solomon and she describes the love that they have for one another. Look at verse 6 and 7. She is saying this to Solomon. Set me as a seal upon thine heart, as a seal upon thine arm. For love is as strong as death. Love cannot be broken. Jealousy is as cruel as the grave. Love cannot be, okay, so uh, set me as a seal on thine heart. Love cannot be broken. Um, love is as strong as death. Love cannot be conquered. Jealousy is as cruel as the grave. Love cannot be shared. The coals thereof are coals of fire, which hath a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it. Love cannot be quenched. If a man would give all the substance of his house for love, it would utterly be condemned. Love cannot be purchased. Now, do you remember back at the beginning when she was first telling her bridal party why her skin was so dark and why she was so insecure? And she said, my mother's children were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard have I not kept. She never understood why her siblings always made her work. They even up interrupted her proposal, for goodness sake, and told her to go chase around foxes instead. But in verse 8 and 9, her siblings explained to her 
why they did what they did. Now, it appears that their parents had died, and it even, there's even hints that her mother died giving birth to her. And her siblings saw their responsibility to care for their younger sister, and they asked this question, what shall we do for our sister in the day that she shall be spoken for? How can we prepare her for marriage? And look in verse 9. If she be a wall, we will build upon her a palace of silver. And if she be a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. If she is like a wall and she blocks the advances of men before she is ready, then we'll reward her for that. We'll build upon that wall a palace of silver. But if she is like a door easily open to the affections of men, we will protect her until she is ready. And the sister responds in verse 10, I am a wall. That's what I was. I was a wall. Because you always made me work. You always made me focus on other things. Uh, you always had me to uh, focus on what was important now. And she explains how she now understands and appreciates what her siblings did for her. Look in verse 10. Then was I in his eyes as one that found favor. She says, it was the very fact that I wasn't a door. It was the very fact that I wasn't just open to the attention of everybody. That was actually what attracted him to me. Now, here is where the um, narrator jumps in, and he gives an important piece of information in verse 11. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Hamon, and he let out that vineyard unto keepers. The vineyard that her and her siblings had worked in belonged to Solomon. And every one uh, for the fruit thereof was to bring a thousand pieces of silver. At every harvest time, it was her job and her siblings' job to give back a thousand pieces of silver from the produce. But as a thank you, she asked Solomon from now on, from my vineyard that I used to watch, will you allow my siblings to keep 200 pieces of silver out of that 1,000 as a thank you? And apparently he agrees. And we get towards the end. Solomon asks for his bride to come away with him. He says, I want to get away from the crowd. I want to be where only I can hear you. And look what she says in verse 14. Make haste, my beloved, and be, like a, be thou like to a roe or to a young heart upon the mountains of spices. She's calling back to the day when he first showed his love for her and asked for her hand in marriage. And that's how the book ends. Do you see the analogy? So what is an analogy? An analogy is a comparison between two facts, one fact being understandable, and one fact being difficult to understand or mysterious. Here in the Song of Solomon, God uses the understandable fact of a loving relationship between a man and a woman to illustrate the love that we should share between us and the Lord. How do you explain love between finite man and an infinite God? Well, you use an analogy. And all throughout scripture, God uses this analogy. He uses the institution of marriage to illustrate the relationship that we are supposed to share with him. And that is why Satan desires so greatly to corrupt marriage. Because on this earth, nothing so vividly pictures the love that we should share with God than the love that a husband is supposed to share with his wife. This is why Ephesians 5, 31 and 32 says, For this cause shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ 
and the church. And this is why all throughout scripture, whenever God's people started to worship idols or whenever they started to love the world, what did God call them? Adulterers and adulteresses. Therefore, in this story, we can safely say that Solomon, albeit a very imperfect one, is a picture of God, more specifically a picture of Jesus, a picture of Christ, the one who left his throne to live as a common man, the one who found us as a shepherd and loved us for who we were. We are that Shulamite woman, the one who wonders, how could anybody love me? The one who says we have nothing to offer. The one who says we have no beauty of our own. How could even a shepherd love me? And then we find out he's a king. And our mind makes us doubt his love. We often fear that we will lose him, that it is all too good to be true. But whenever we fear, whenever we're overcome with insecurity, whenever we're reminded of our unworthiness, he comes to us with words kind and tender. His perfect love casts out our fear. And he brings us back. What does he always do? He always brings us back to the moment where he commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. When we had nothing to give to him, he gave everything so that we could be together forever. And although we don't understand why, although we realize we are completely unworthy, we cannot help when we look at the cross we cannot help but see that he loves us for who we are. And he loves us with an everlasting love. A love that can't be broken. I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. A love that cannot be conquered. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? A love that cannot be shared. God is a jealous God and no man can serve two masters. A love that cannot be quenched. I have loved thee with an everlasting love, he says in Jeremiah. And a love that cannot be bought except with something that is priceless. For God so loved the world that he gave. Stop trying to work your way to heaven. Stop trying to buy God's love. You can't afford it. And that's why he gives it to you freely. And our desire should be to grab a hold of him and never let him go. To always go back to where we first tasted of his love and always renew our love with each other every single day. What a joy it is to look at Calvary, that symbol of death, and see instead a symbol of love. On the cross, he purchased us with his own blood. And we can say, I am his. But even more incredible, we can say, he is mine. Charles Spurgeon said, I want to live in such a way where I can whisper a prayer and say, Lord, I love you. And he can whisper back, I know it, Charles. In the Song of Solomon, we find a relationship to strive for, a love to fight for. And what did Jesus say about all the law and the prophets? They can be summed up in this. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. When Peter denied Jesus, and they met again among those fire of coals, Jesus didn't say, Peter, I'm done with you. He didn't say, we're going to put you on a probationary period, and we'll see how you do. He said, you know what, Peter? I can use even your faults and your failures if I just know one thing. Do you love me? And that's my question. Do you love your Lord? Do you love him like you used to? Or have you left your first love? Do you love him like you should? 
Now, my wife asked me when I was talking about this, how, how can you not look at this story, a beautiful love story, and have it not be cheapened by the fact that you realize that even after this, Solomon searches out 939 more women. And as disappointed and disgusted as we are with Solomon's adultery, we must ask ourselves, how often do I leave my first love and instead give my love to the world? Jesus has never done that to you. Maybe Solomon did it to the lady that God had for him, but Jesus has never done that for us. My king has never left of his love for me. How can I love another? How could I seek for another love? How could I love the world or the things that are in the world? If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The Bible says that we, the church, are the bride of Christ. We must live in a way where we can truly say, I am his and he is mine alone. 2 Corinthians 11.2 says, For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. And Revelation says one day we will stand before him on that great wedding day. And we will feel just like that Shulamite, completely unworthy. But with eyes of everlasting mercy and unending love, he will look back at us and see us as perfect, a bride without spot and blemish, and we will be together with him forever. What a day that will be. Thank you for listening to our audio preaching podcast. For more information about our ministries, or if you would like to get in contact with us, please visit our website at heritagebaptistcctx.org. May God bless you as you go forward with the gospel this week.